Hi, We The People listeners. This week, we're bringing you another one of our favorite live events from 2018. Host Jeffrey Rosen's conversation with Michelle Goldberg of the New York Times, Jeff Goldberg of The Atlantic, and Jonah Goldberg of National Review, discussing James Madison, the media, and the mob as part of our November National Symposium, co-hosted by The Atlantic Magazine. This episode was originally published on our companion podcast, Live at America's Town Hall, which features live constitutional conversations with leading historians, journalists, scholars, and public officials held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode of We the People. Happy New Year and enjoy the show. Welcome to Live at America's Town Hall, the podcast bringing you live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Tanea Tauber, Director of Town Hall Programming. Today we will hear from the Goldbergs, not the TV show characters, but a group of distinguished journalists. Jeffrey Goldberg is editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. Michelle Goldberg is an op-ed columnist for The New York Times, and Jonah Goldberg is senior editor of The National Review. The Goldbergs joined forces for the first time for a panel on Madison, the media, and the mob, exploring what Madison would make of mainstream media and social media today. NCC president and CEO Jeffrey Rosen moderated this panel, which was produced in partnership with The Atlantic as part of our national symposium, The Constitution in Crisis, What Would the Founders Think? Here's Jeff. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Constitution Center. The National Constitution Center, as some of you know, is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. <laughs> Wonderful. You have stirred our determination to have an illuminating Madisonian conversation as part of this wonderful collaboration that we have with The Atlantic Magazine to ask what James Madison would make of American democracy today, and how can we resurrect Madisonian values of reason rather than passion in our polarized world? We've had an extraordinary morning convening members of our Madisonian Commission, some of the leading scholars in America of Madison, to channel his thoughts on the presidency, Congress, courts, and the media, and you'll hear from them today. We have Senator Chris Coons, who's on the train right now and will be joining us after casting a vote at 7 o'clock. But we're going to begin, friends, with episode seven of The Goldbergs. <laughs> <laughs> and we have our patriarch, Murray, <laughs> and his wife, uh, Beverly, and their son, Adam, who are all here in Jenkinstown, Pennsylvania. And, and what was it like growing up, uh, Goldberg, Jeff? <laughs> in fact, this whole panel was something of a joke. I think two of you accepted, and then, Jeff, you suggested why don't you get all three. And this right, is the right. first time... And I was joking. You were I joking. was actually joking. Well, we take things seriously at the Constitution Center. This is the first time... Uh, the Goldbergs have gathered in the tri-state area, yeah, and this yeah. is the most ideologically diverse gathering of Goldbergs since my aunt's Thanksgiving, I think, right. as well. Uh, but we're absolutely thrilled that you're here. So let's jump right in. And the question on the table is, what would Madison make of American democracy today? And in an essay uh, for The Atlantic that Jeff asked me to write, my thesis was that Madison would be 
appalled by the fact that we are governed by faction, which he defined as a majority or a minority animated by passion rather than reason, devoted to self-interest rather than the public good. So Jonah, you have written extensively about tribalism. You've written a remarkable book about the death of the enlightenment ideal of the individual. Would, do you agree that Madison would be appalled by the tribalism we're living in today, or do you have a different diagnosis of the problem? Um, I think he would, first of all, thank you for having me here. Uh, never have so many Goldbergs gathered outside of an orthodontist convention. Um, <laughs> and the one of the things I like about this is that it's sort of like that scene in Blazing Saddles where at the town meeting, Howard Johnson's right. I agree with Howard Johnson. They're all named Howard Johnson. <laughs> I, the one thing I'm sure of is that Goldberg will be right tonight. Um, uh, I certainly think that Madison would look upon America today and find all sorts of problems. And I generally agree with you that uh, the, the problem of faction is one, you know, faction is just a, it's a, it's just a fancy, somewhat antiquarian word for, um, for tribalism, right? The, the neuroscientists call it um, the coalition instinct. We are hardwired, or we come with wiring that says whenever we can form a group of self, in, where we have shared self-interests, we will conspire against other groups to protect our own interests. And that is basically how society was organized for 10,000 years. Whether it was guilds, whether it was aristocracies, um, you had closed societies where rule was personalized for the self-interest of those who had power. And the great task that, that, what, that Madison set upon was the way to figure out how to have a society, a large society, because until then the only semi-viable republics were city-states, um, how you have a large society where you have a mixed form of rule. Pure democracy he didn't think would work. We weren't gonna go back to monarchy. Um, you need a mixed form of competing institutions that would create neutral rules for everybody to deal to, in the public sphere, in the extended republic. And you know, Adam Smith has this great line on the Wealth of Nations where he says, seldom will two, me two members of the same trade or, or business or profession meet in a pub or anywhere else where quickly the conversation doesn't turn to a conspiracy against the public good. And what Smith meant by that was exactly what it sounds like, that people will try to form monopolies or guilds or self-interested groups, and there's no getting around that, because that is human nature. The trick is to keep any one faction, tribe, group, self-interest, self-interested party, from getting the power of government to impose their will on others. And I think that one of the problems that we have in society is sort of counterintuitive today is that, first of all, we, um, the real problem in some ways is that we are losing the power of these competing institutions. And I don't necessarily just mean in government. First of all, I mean, there's lots of problems in government, but faith and trust in institutions across the board is incredibly down. There are, there's so many fewer institutions that give people a sense of belonging and meaning in life today. And so what is happening is large numbers of people are looking to national politics to, fulfill, to fill the holes in their soul or give them a sense of meaning or belonging. And when you do that, you end up having these large national coalitions where the other becomes an abstraction. And um, we have lived in this, one of these great ironies is that we live in one of the most partisan moments in American history, maybe more partisan than any moment since the 1850s, but the parties have never been weaker. And, um, and so you have this situation what they call negative polarization, which is this idea that there are millions of Americans who are 
Republicans solely because they hate, or primarily because they hate Democrats. And there are millions of Democrats who are Democrats because they primarily hate Republicans. My wife had this great New Yorker cartoon blown up and framed for me a few years ago for my birthday, and it has two dogs drinking martinis at a bar in suits. And one dog says to the other, you know, it's not good enough that dogs succeed. Cats must also fail. <laughs> and that describes a big chunk of the tenor of our politics today because we are no longer lining up with healthy, sort, healthy conduits of faction. Because Madison believed that you couldn't get rid of this coalition instinct, you could only channel it in positive ways. And instead, all of our energies are being focused on Washington, and you're getting these competing tribal factions where the other isn't just simply wrong, but he's evil and the enemy. And that is what is making like cable news the horror show that it is. It's what's making you know, Donald Trump's Twitter feed the horror that it is. Um, and that is a very difficult thing to unwind. Uh, and the media climate, which I, we can talk about later, I think is fueling this because it's monetizing it rather than fighting against it, the, great, the good work of the Atlantic notwithstanding. Fascinating. You said many things, and one of the interesting uh, ironies is that parties, which Madison didn't anticipate, as you suggested, once came to serve an aggregating and cooling function, and now that they've declined, uh, the tribes are back. Michelle, in your inaugural column for the New York Times, you said that we are living not in Madison's tyranny of the majority, but, his, but tyranny of the minority. And he did indeed define faction as a majority or a minority. You gave the example of the Electoral College. What are other examples of how we are living in a tyranny of the minority, and is that a Madisonian problem? Well, I think, I mean, obviously, the Constitution was set up to create a lot of countermajorian checks, right? It was obviously never meant to be a pure direct democracy. But whether or not the founders, and I don't think the founders ever did, first of all, I mean, the founders didn't really envision kind of a two-party system as we have today, right? They envisioned much more kind of cross-cutting sorts of alliances and, you know, multiple factions. Um, so I don't think that they could have envisioned a, a system where you have a minority faction that is able to capture every single lever of government and kind of work its will on a hostile majority that has basically no way within the constitutional structure to change that. I mean, no way short, obviously that isn't entirely true. The Democrats just took the House. But if you look at what happened, what I think has happened is that the demography of the United States and the political polarization, the fact that the parties are increasingly divided, um, you know, not even so much between North, North and South, but between um, metros and kind of more rural areas. So you, the places where the people live, the places where kind of you have concentrations of people all sort of have somewhat similar politics and are being ruled by the places where there's just a lot fewer people. And so what you have is this situation. So I remember learning, and I don't know if this is true of other people, I remember learning about the Electoral College in school and kind of first being told about the fact that technically a president could not, could get, um, not get a majority of the vote but still become president. But it was always presented as sort of a technical matter that would all, that really that was really sort of an abstraction. It happened, you know, in far off history. It was nothing that we would have to contend with. And now it's happened in two out of the last five elections. You know, so you have both the growing power of this right wing, um, kind of you know, ethnically homogenous rural majority that is amplified by the electoral college, where you have disproportionate um, power given to these rural voters. 
then, of course, you have the Senate. Um, I, I believe it's by 2040 that 30% of the country is going to have 70% of the seats and 70% of the country is going to have 30% of the seats. And that would have been maybe less of a problem in another America where that 30% of the country and that 70% of the country weren't kind of tribes in and of themselves, right, where there, where there was kind of more diversity within the parties. But right now, you know, I feel like I'm looking at a future where 30% of the country that is fundamentally hostile to everything I believe in and value is going to be basically ruling over me and my children for the foreseeable future. Uh, you know, Democrats did just capture the House, but to capture the House, they didn't need a majority. They needed something closer to not quite a supermajority, but they needed a pretty substantial majority. And you see these kind of, you know, counter-majoritarian um, arrangements, you know, they, they're replicated in the states in terms of how kind of state houses are constituted. And so again, as the cities, as, as kind of city people and rural people become increasingly hostile to each other, the, the rule by the rural people over the city people, I think will become increasingly untenable. Um, you know, and, and to me, it, it almost doesn't matter what the, at a certain point, it doesn't matter what the founders would have made of it because I actually think that at a certain point, if majority rule becomes too instantiated, it renders the system itself illegitimate, right? I mean, it's just like, it's kind of, then it renders the system itself something that needs to be dissolved or replaced. That 30% of the country holding 70% of the seat statistic is very striking, and as we'll hear later from our scholars, including Colleen Sheehan, although Madison is opposed to temporary majorities or minorities ruling, he does hope that over time, durable majorities can rule. And if we have structural systems that make that impossible, that does sound like a Madisonian problem. Jeff, in your extremely generous and eloquent introduction to the riveting Atlantic special issue on the crisis of democracy, you contrast two places, the National Constitution Center here in Philly and Facebook headquarters in Menlo Park, and you say that Facebook is a Madisonian constitutional nightmare because it represents warp speed deliberation and posts based on passion rather than reason that Madison would have abhorred. Uh, disaggregate. Facebook also has a better cafeteria. <laughs> uh, we, just, we just got a Starbucks. Yeah. <laughs> the post-truth cafeteria. Yes. Uh, all carbs. It's fine, right? Um, the. Uh, yeah, no, you know, I, we, we've had many conversations, Jeff and I have had many conversations uh, on this subject and, and how Madison thought, and one of those conversations was wandering the exhibits here a few months ago. Um, I, uh, I'll disaggregate that for you as best as I can, uh, but I would, I would start by noting that uh, it struck me on one of my many visits to this institution that this is a monument to pessimism in a way, a monument to the idea, the, the, the founder's idea that humans were frail and humans were flawed and we need to build checks and balances on our checks and balances to make sure that they don't go too far astray in any given generation. Um, obviously Madison was acute on this subject um, and um, if I may, just because this is something that you taught me, um, I didn't fully realize how much uh, how horrible Madison would find this, the current media moment. You know, like many of the founders, but even more acutely, he believed that the president, for instance, should not be in direct contact with the American people. Um, and, and we obviously are now in the kind of 
funhouse mirror version of, of that, um, thanks to Twitter and a president who knows how to use Twitter um, to shore up his base, to shore up that 30% and make sure it's, it's devoted to his cause. Um, you know, so, so that's, um, you know, that's one aspect of this. Um, the, other, the other piece of it that I found so interesting, and this is again in our conversations, uh, is that I think there was an understanding on the part of Madison and others that um, humans could take in only so much information at any given time. Um, and, and what he feared, as you talk about, there's not supposed to be a democracy, it's an indirect democracy at best. Um, that, that, that there was an assumption and the part, this is why I contrasted Facebook headquarters in this building. Um, there was an assumption on the part, and I think it was a utilitarian assumption. I think it was a, it was a useful assumption on the part of, of teenage tech entrepreneurs um, to say, oh, if we link everyone up, across the world. This is, they, they did not have a very Calvinist or Catholic view of, of the fallen condition of man. They said, if we just get everybody in the world talking to each other instantaneously, good things will come out of that. Now, if you, have, if you study politics, if you study civil war, if you study tribalism, if you study human nature, you say, maybe it's not so great if everybody talks to each other all the time and, and shares their first initial emotion about a thing. Um, that's the contrast here. Um, and that's what Madison, I mean, Madison could not have envisioned. Madison, you know, I don't tell you, um, was worried about the rise of the daily newspaper. You know, that was too much communication. Um, that was too much new information coming at the citizenry every day to be absorbed, to, be, to, to have an emotional reaction against, and then to cool off before there's a new set of information that's coming at you. Um, so you know, we, are, um, we, are, we are in a state now in which uh, Madisonian understanding of human frailty has been replaced by this kind of um, useful utopianism, useful I mean in a capitalist sense for the, for the leaders of these groups, leaders of these organizations, a useful utopianism that believes that, um, that humans can handle an un unbelievable quantity of, of information, whether or not it's filtered through truth or, or, or falsehood, that we, we ourselves are the filters and that we can handle this. Um, this is why we're in I mean, I'm not gonna. I don't want to overstate it by calling it a dystopian nightmare. But um, <laughs> I think, you I think that was just why. This is why we're in this dystopian nightmare. Yeah. Um, uh, in the moment, I, I, I never. Uh, I'll never. You know. Uh, you try to. You try to imagine. You see how far we've. I, I'll say one final thing. As just as an. Uh, when you're an editor today, what you try to do um, is limit the number of times a day your writers use the word unprecedented to apply to the Trump administration. Because <laughs> it can get, you know, it's, you, you want to have a high standard, a high threshold of what actually <laughs> is unprecedented. And I wouldn't say that Donald Trump's use of Twitter and other forms of communication uh, is unprecedented because, because presidents from the Madison, from the, from the period of the founders till now, have become more and more directly in contact with the American people. But he's, um, as they say in Spinal Tap, he's dialed it up to 11. That's not fully <laughs> pr unprecedented, but we're in, a, we're in a new situation. Right, previous presidents definitely didn't share Facebook memes of their deputy attorney general in prison. No, no, I will give you that. Unprecedented. <laughs> <laughs> Kinley oh, might have done that. <laughs> yeah. Although Obama was, of course, the first uh, tweeting uh, president. And I was so moved by how moved you were, Jeff, by seeing the original Constitution printed in the Pennsylvania Packet newspaper, the fact that it was printed in a newspaper, but the newspapers traveled slowly. 
and Madison expected an enlightened class of journalists, he called the literati, which is basically the staff writers of the Atlantic, to slowly We're the spread glitterati, reason. Actually. The glitterati, yeah. no, it's very glamorous, yeah. of course, yeah. to be associated with you, but to slowly spread reason across the land. Jonah, you've written about Twitter mobs and the way that they can uh, crystallize passions in really illiberal ways. And part of the Twitter mob is a loss of deference to elites. The idea of a literati that people would defer to is inconceivable today. So is the internet the cause of these mobs or is it a symptom of an age that's lost deference to institutions and refuses to accept their authority? I, I think it's a catalyst. There's this great line in Orwell where he says, a man can feel himself a failure and take to drink and become all the more of a failure because he drinks. The problems that we have existed prior to the advent of Twitter and Facebook, but Twitter and Facebook are making them worse. And I mean, I, I'm a, uh, my own pet theory is that we, you know, the, the Romantic era never actually ended. Romanticism was born as a rebellion against the Enlightenment, against the cold rationalism of the Enlightenment. And, and in strict terms, you know, whether it's Rousseau or whoever, it's, uh, it's this argument that you should go with your feelings that your individual passions trump any argument or reason or marshalling of facts. That, and that very much describes vast swaths of our culture right now. We tell kids to go with your gut, go with your feelings, that the highest form of authenticity is, is, your, is found when you look inward. And we have, and this is what I was alluding to before about our faith and trust in institutions. We don't like gatekeepers of any kind anymore. And we don't like you know, the, the, the sort of standard phrase, you're not the boss of me. And, um, and so it's this disintermediation that we see throughout the culture, that we see in our politics. You know, people ask me, why doesn't you know, National Review, where you know, I'm a senior editor, why doesn't it do more as, you know, play more of its role as a gatekeeper the way it had in the past? I say, we're manning the gates. The problem is, is the walls have all crumbled down. You know, it used to be that if Build William, the wall. Yeah, yeah, well, I would like to. Build very the much. wall, Jonah. Um, you know, my, my Twitter mentions are often like opening up the Ark of the Covenant in Indiana Jones. I mean, it's just <laughs> face-melting horror. And, um, but, you know, in the old days, if William F. Buckley said that you were too much of a fever swamp guy or too much of an anti-Semite to be in National Review or to be on firing line, um, there wasn't a lot of places you could go. You could crank out a mimeograph newsletter. Today, you have access to as much media as everybody else, and that makes it very difficult to discipline, to message, to, to weed out the cranks. And when you have the shrink, where you no longer have big media institutions, like I have plenty of criticisms of the New York Times and the golden age of CBS News and all of that, but at the end of the day, when you have a 70% share of the market, you can force people to, to read the news that they need to read rather than just the news that they want to read. And now we live in this era where you can reach, you, people, Robert Putnam has been documenting this for 20 years. People are retreating from civil society, they're retreating from their local communities, and they're going on places like Facebook where they have their worst instincts and their worst bigotries confirmed and affirmed rather than challenged. And we, so we live in this media market now where people are trying to get a sticky one or 2% of the media market, um, and you end up doing a lot of fan service. And I think this is true of MSNBC. I certainly think it's true of a lot of Fox News. 
Um, it's certainly true of a lot of websites where people are telling people what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear because when you're hearing what you want to hear, you don't think there's a gatekeeper. You don't think there's someone lecturing you. In reality, it's someone spoon-feeding you garbage. But that's sort of the moment that we're in, and so it, it fuels this constant sense of panic and crisis and this existential threat that the other poses to everybody. There was that really alarming uh, New York Times piece that said that people exposed to alternative points on view of, on Twitter become more uh, committed to their pre-existing views, not less. Uh, so let's think about solutions. Michelle, you wrote a powerful piece saying Facebook should be regulated as a monopoly. Mark Zuckerberg announced uh, about a week ago that Facebook is proposing to create a new Supreme Court for Facebook, <laughs> where the, I guess the literati will be chosen uh, to uh, review their hate speech decisions and make independent uh, choices. Is that the solution? Break Facebook up and farm its content decisions out to the enlightened? Or uh, do you have other solutions in mind? Well, I don't know if there are. I mean, I don't know if there if there are solutions. I mean, you know, I think one solution somebody should just hack Twitter and bring it down. Period. Um, you know, erase it from the face of the earth. But um, you know, and I think part of the problem it's not. You you talked about how you know, you just mentioned that study about how people exposed to alternative views on Facebook become. I mean, on Twitter become more set in their. Um, in their preconceptions. And I think part of that is just because Twitter itself is so extremely toxic that you're, only, you're exposed to other views in their most kind of trollish state, right? So I think that there is a growing um, belief, on the left at least, that to engage in kind of discussion with the right is to be sort of loosey with the football, right? Nobody is trying to engage you in good faith. No, it's not even that they're saying things that you don't believe, it's that they're saying things that probably they don't even believe, right? That it's all just about sort of um, creating false equivalencies, you know, derailing you, and that, you know, that there's no more, that you can, you can no more kind of engage in a useful dialogue with, say, a Fox News pundit than you could with a creationist, you know, a Holocaust denier, an anti-vaxxer, right? That it actually ends up just making you dumber and sending you down rabbit holes of nonsense. And so I think the more, the, you know, we're trying at the New York Times, we have, I have a podcast, um, with my conservative colleague, Ross Douthat, you know, we try to kind of find places where we can where we can talk and, you know, I think that, you know, we like each other, we have like a collegial relationship. Um, I still find that we often have, and I read probably more conservative media than most left-wing journalists, and I still often find that he, he will make arguments that I, that I, there's like an entire factual body of information that I kind of had, ne I don't even know how to evaluate it because I never even knew about it. You know, like we're often not operating from kind of any similar premises. Um, and so I think fundamental part of the problem is a problem of just trust, right? You're not going to um, you're not going to be kind of an, someone's you're not going to be expose yourself to a interlocutor. You're not going to expose yourself to an alternative body of information if you don't believe that that there's that there's kind of good faith behind it. If you don't if you think that the person behind it is just kind of fundamentally trying to deceive you. And here I think there is really a difference. I know people like to draw equivalency between MSNBC and Fox News. I mean, full disclosure, I'm an MSNBC contributor, 
But I also know I've never in my life had somebody say something, had, had a liberal on MSNBC say something when the cameras are on and then say something else when they're off. Um, I have had that experience being on TV shows with conservatives who will sort of talk about, you know, talk very contemptuously about Trump and then defend him the second the commercial break is over. And, you know, you kind of, you don't need to listen to somebody like that. Um, arguing with them is just sort of play acting. It's just kabuki theater. Um, so I think the difference between MSNBC and Fox is that MSNBC, the people who work at MSNBC they're certainly frustrated that they can't cover certain issues. Like, you know, my friend Chris Hayes will talk about frustration that he can't do more coverage of immigration, that he can't do more coverage of climate change. But the stuff he covers, he does genuinely believe that he is giving you the most accurate picture of the world as kind of he sees it. Whereas, you know, so I don't think there's any equivalency to say Fox News, which is trying to convince you that Seth Rich was murdered because he was the one who gave, um, the hacked DNC emails to Julian Assange and that it really had nothing to do with the Russians. You know, I can't imagine anything on MSNBC equivalent to this recent scandal where it turned out that they were working, that Fox News was working hand in hand with Scott Pruitt um, to, um, you know, to kind of let him pre-review scripts and let him pre-review segments and kind of, you know, there's, there's, MSNBC was never state TV for the Obama administration in the way that Fox News is state TV for the Trump administration. And so I don't see, again, I feel like as long as, I've I'd said this in my column before, that I think you know we used to believe that politics was a battle of ideas, right? And that if you wanted to kind of meaningfully engage in politics, you sort of had to be somewhat conversant with the opposing body of ideas, right? I mean, if you, you had to kind of, understand the thinking behind neoconservatism, even if you wanted to oppose it, just to be able to kind of speak meaningfully about current affairs. And now I think that what's changed is that the people who believe in ideas are a side in politics, and then there's another side that sees ideas in purely instrumental terms and sees its loyalties in kind of purely ethnic terms and is not really interested in argument except as a tool of, um, Kind of confusion and you know mass epistemological derangement. Um, you know, I, I don't know what to I don't know what to do about that. I mean, I know that the that social media allows it and makes it worse and makes it worse not just here but all over the world um, and needs to take more responsibility for that. I mean, it should certainly be taking more responsibility for spreading genocidal propaganda in countries where you know you can kind of draw a direct line between people spreading kind of terrible rumors about outgroups on Facebook and then massacres happening. Um, you know, and so, but the problem to me is that what is the organization or the institution that has enough um, kind of broad legitimacy to step in and do it in, st in place of the algorithms. You know, I just, I don't know what it is. Yeah, I, just, do you want a response quick, from the, from the anti-Trump uh, right? Is, is the post-facts, is, is the yeah, post-facts society I mean, a, a purely uh, a creature of the right or is it an equal opportunity problem? I, I, I look, I, I certainly don't believe that MSNBC and Fox are equivalent. And I don't believe that necessarily as a defense of Fox or as a defense of MSNBC. They are, they are organized differently. Um, I, I've been a Fox News contributor for 10 years. I doubt I'll be there for an 11th. Um, uh, and in part because the people that you're talking about, I, don't, I am not aware of any news show that did, peddled any 
of the Seth Rich stuff. That was purely Sean Hannity, who is... There are two Foxes. I mean, there it's are, important there are depth, But this is an important point. Uh, the opinion side of Fox, I will not defend. Fox and Friends is basically the president's daily brief. Um, the things that Sean Hannity has done with his show, I will not defend. Um, uh, but Shepard Smith, Brett Baer, Chris Wallace, they're still news people. My objection to MSNBC, and I really don't want to get into this right versus left thing, um, but the, my objection to MSNBC is you hear an enormous amount of preening, and also at CNN, um, of how the president's attack on the free press are outrageous. I think they are outrageous. I, you know, I am not a defender of President Trump tweeting like an escape monkey from a cocaine study. But um, at the same time, you have score, you have many of the leading news, news anchors at MSNBC who reliably go back and forth over the line from opinionated punditry to claiming that they are just reporters of the facts. And I have a lot of respect for Andrea Mitchell, but she goes back and forth between serious opining and claiming that she's just a fact-driven journalist. Um, Rachel Maddow, the ad for her show on Sirius Radio, and I listen to a lot of MSNBC, um, her ad for her show is just reporting the, fat, reporting the news without fear or favor. Now, I have no, I'm an opinion journalist. I got no problem with opinion journalism. I think opinion journalism is often the best form of journalism because you know the author has to be honest about what their biases are. It's the objective press that is often worse because it hides their biases. Um, and but the idea that Rachel Maddow is not an opinionated, opinion-driven journalist, I just think is ludicrous. And I think there are a lot of people, and one of the reasons why you have the enemy of the people rhetoric, which I think is repugnant, one of the reasons why you have the fake news stuff having such traction with millions of Americans is that they see this too. They see how there is an enormous amount of liberal fan service and supposedly objective journalism that they feel is, is hostile to them and their interests. And this idea, and so when, and when you claim that you have one side that is, uh, you know, the reality-based community or epistemologically driven by facts and the other side isn't. I don't think that was ever true. I think there's an enormous amount of groupthink on both sides. And if in this client, and I'm not saying that there, these things are equivalent, but if you think only the other side is tribal, you might be part of a tribe, too. So, I, but, I, Jeff, let me ask what, you, as America's... Would, as, would, would you like the, me to adjudicate? I, would, I, I want you to adjudicate. adjudicate as, between as, the Goldbergs? As the editor of America's Journal of Ideas, your response, is this Trademark. a factor yeah. of television versus print and something about performing on television that makes people more... I mean, everything by is performative. Stuff? And, and, but, and, or, or is this phenomenon, the post-fact society, which we see on college campuses and among older people too, a more profound epistemological problem, to use the excellent word, that really point. transcends Facebook or any technology, but is striking at the core of the Enlightenment project? I think the veneer of civilization and rationality is very thin. It's a little coat of lacquer over, over our monkey brains. Um, not to keep on the monkey theme, obviously, Joan. Um, and I think a lot of different things are conspiring and a lot of different forces are conspiring at once to bring us to this, um, I don't want to say pre-enlightenment phase, but moving us backward, you know, moving us toward some sort of pre-enlightenment understanding of truth, which is that there, 
there is no objective, verifiable, empirical truth. There's just your truth and my truth and his truth and, and theological truth and other kinds of truth. Um, the, and those factors include, and, and, and I, I don't want to, I really don't want to adjudicate cable news. Um, the, I didn't come all the way to Philadelphia to do that. Um, <laughs> the, um, I would say, I mean, I, I, think, I think it's a social media problem more than it is a cable news problem. I think they feed each other, obviously. But I, I think, uh, and I want to go to the, the, the subject that Michelle comes to quite often in her columns, or reasonably often in her columns. Uh, Facebook, and t Facebook, unless it polices itself, will get policed eventually. I don't think there's a choice. I mean, they can't. What you have in Mark Zuckerberg is someone who invented something he didn't understand. Um, that's not a criticism necessarily of Mark Zuckerberg. No one understands this. This is wholly new experience and wholly new experiment in communication. We have the technology before we know how to use it. And, and so that has brought us to this place. Uh, and by the way, open parenthetical back to Jonah's point um, about the MSM. It is true, the, 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 and I'm a defender, obviously, of these so-called mainstream media. Um, uh, it is true that we are far from perfect. It is true that we were having, for a very long time, a very polite dinner party, and then the barbarians came in through the windows and started dancing on the table. And you know what? That's not wholly bad. I'm going to sound anti-Madisonian for a second and say that, you, you know, and, and somebody who runs a, runs a journalism organization at the moment I could say that because of the democratization brought about by social media, we have people in our newsroom who didn't even know our newsroom existed 10 or 15 years ago, if you know what I mean. I mean, people from marginalized communities um, uh, of the left and right, theocons on the right, and people, from, people of color from communities that didn't even know where the front door was to the mainstream media. So, so it's not, it's not all, all bad. But I think you have, uh, and I'll come to the end of this peroration, um, I think you have a number of factors that have worked us into the pickle that we're in. Um, social media is an enormous one. The, the, the accentuation of the rural uh, city divide is one. Um, the, uh, you know, we're not, talking, we're not talking about technology in all of its form, but it's an enormous thing. You know, we are, we are leaving the period in human history, which has been all of human history, in which male upper body strength can earn somebody a living and self-esteem. Um, and that is causing tremendous dislocation and tremendous fear in many, many communities across the country and across the planet. And then you have, and I come back to this original point about this thin layer. You know, one of the things we've discovered, I shouldn't say we, one of the things I've discovered in the uh, past couple of years, and I'm somebody who covered the Obama administration for eight years, so it's like covering Mr. Spock for eight years. You know, you, you know the, the, an administration run sometimes hyper-rationally without enough understanding of human emotion, but run very rationally, I thought that we were moving steadily or semi-steadily away from the primordial muck about, of irrationality and tribe and faction and, and, and anger as a motivator in politics. Um, but you know, I, I, I've been as surprised as, as a lot of people um, about where we are. Um, the, 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 the layer of civilization is thin um, and all you need is a reality television star um, who's charismatic and who has a, a predator's understanding for weakness um, and, and a grifter's understanding of, of the, the needs and weaknesses of his enemies and of his putative friends um, to, to, take a, to take a hammer to a lot of our institutions and a lot of our norms. And, um, Social media has made this possible. Yes, 
the cable wars have made this possible. Um, the lack of civic education, here I'm gonna plug your center, obviously. The lack of understanding of what these documents that you talk about in this, in this, in this building even mean. A, a million different things have happened, um, and so we have a perfect storm right now. Can I say something about this building? I mean, you were talking about how this building is like a monument to pessimism. I've often said that I wish that... For realism. I shouldn't be so well, negative. For fundraising I wish that some of these technology behemoths had like a chief pessimism officer, like somebody whose job it was to actually think about... Like if one of Mark Zuckerberg's roommates was a pessimist, it would have, <laughs> are you sure this is a good idea? You know, like when you, I mean, when, when, you, when you talk to people, especially about what the next generation of these things are, I mean, the next generation is both a lot of the um, content moderation being done by artificial intelligence. Um, the next generation of fake news is not going to be fake news stories. It's going to be fake news video. Right. You know, and you see the people inventing this stuff and just kind of assuming that the that the um, kind of that 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 it's self-correcting. That that further waves of technology of of innovation are going to kind of make it work and that whole but ethos, do you agree that they're going to be policed or they will police themselves or maybe we shouldn't even assume that that's a possibility oh i mean i think i hope that they'll be policed i don't think that they will police themselves just because when they police themselves it inevitably it means you know working against their own market dominance yes, right I, and i agree with that and but i just want to make a madisonian point about this please. um <laughs> oh, uh, please, I, I actually thought that your suggestion about just hacking twitter and destroying it from within makes more sense than some of the police, police it stuff, right? Or maybe nuke it from orbit, because it's the only way to be sure. Um, the, the, you know, if you read the Marxist historian Gabriel Kolko, right, the, there is a very long history going back to AT&T and US Steel of making this Adam Smith point about factions begging for regulation so that then they can lock in their monopoly status. And then when the, when the state starts to regulate you, you also get to start regulating the state. And um, I agree with you entirely about the future of this technology. It's very scary. You just have to look at China to realize that the one sort of uh, conventional wisdom that technology is always on the side of individual liberty and freedom was never true. It was never foreordained. Technology can be on the side of tyrants or it can be on the side of liberty. It depends on the context. And you have to be careful about it. But regulatory capture is a real concern of mine. And when you saw um, uh, Zuckerberg testify um, in Congress this year, he basically invited regulation. And, I, and it's not because he wants to lose profit. It's that historically there's a long history of this, of big monopolistic corporations inviting regulation to create a barrier to entry that makes it difficult for any other competing institution to rise up against it. And again, I, I do think we have to probably in the long run do something about it. Zuckerberg will be very happy to have, okay, we'll just have 80% of the internet. That's fine. Lock yeah, we'll, us we'll, in. have a, we'll have the ministry of, of Facebook that has locks in guaranteed profits or whatnot. I and mean, so, I actually think he wants regulation. He's inviting regulation, not so much because he thinks it's going to protect him from against a new upstart, but just because he thinks that like regulation that he seems to be cooperating with is going to be more amenable to him than, you know, President Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez nationalizing Facebook. Or yeah, like, well, but, but yeah, but, and nationalizing <laughs> Facebook. 
Has that happened since we started? It's <laughs> amazing. But nationalizing Facebook would be a terrible thing, yeah. right? I mean, Wait, can, I, can I just uh, add a, a possibly amusing coda to the Twitter conversation? The best idea for Twitter that I've heard uh, came from somebody inside Twitter who I can't name, who said that it's understood inside the company that they can't ban the president of the United States from Twitter. That's not feasible. But what they can do is ban everyone else from Twitter. <laughs> and, just, uh, and, and just let him tweet. And nobody else can go on. It's not a great market play, by the way. So in the election of 1912, there were three positions on antitrust. Uh, the nationalist Theodore Roosevelt wanted to create a bureau of corporations to regulate uh, the Morgan Bank. Uh, the uh, uh, Jeffersonian Louis Brandeis and Woodrow Wilson wanted to break up the bank so they could be regulated by the states. And uh, the constitutionalist William Howard Taft wanted vigorous antitrust prosecutions. Neither of those is a plausible possibility now because of the paralysis in Congress that you, Jonah, have memorably called uh, the transformation of Congress into a parliament of pundits. Right. Talk about the way that our, the greatest representative body has deteriorated into a group of tribalist uh, lone actors, and that is making any kind of regulation impossible. Yeah, so I mean, if you haven't watched it, Ben Sass's opening statement during the Kavanaugh hearings, wherever you come down on Kavanaugh, that's a different issue, right? This is before the, the troubles. Um, he makes this, this profound and important point about how Congress is supposed to be where politics happens. It's supposed to be where people bring their issue, representatives from their districts or from their states, bring the issues that concern the American people and they hammer them out and they hash them out. And for a century now, Congress has outsourced so much of its functions to the executive branch or the administrative state or to the courts. Um, like Madison, this is what would shock, I think, Madison perhaps the most. They, all the founding fathers just assumed that, Cong that the, the Congress, which is the supreme branch of government, this co-equal branch's garbage is not true, right? Congress has the power to declare laws, has the power to levy taxes, which the founding fathers cared a bit about. You might remember that. Um, they write the laws. They create all the courts except for the Supreme Court, at least at the federal level, right? They, um, they have all the trade authority, which they've given to the executive branch. Um, and they should claw back. And so what has happened is, is that we don't do politics where it's supposed to happen. And so it's happening in other places. And it doesn't get the transparency. It doesn't have the oversight. People feel as if, whether you're on the left or the right, that the people they're voting into Congress they may say wonderful things on cable television or on Twitter, but they're not actually getting the laws done that they, they want done. And this is a huge problem, and it is, it is kindling for populism. And so instead what you get is you get a lot of people who would rather, who, because they can't actually affect a lot of change, would rather get a hit on Morning Joe or Fox and Friends or whatever it is, because that's what gets them elected. That's what keeps them from having a primary challenger. Uh, ben Sass, who I'm, I'm friends with, he tells me the story that when he first came into the Senate, he went and did a lot of these interviews with members of the Obama administration, and he just asked, you know, what's the thing you find most shocking? And several people told him, it was, they were amazed that senators would come and lobby members of the executive branch to do a rule change that would benefit their states or their donors or constituents in one way or another. And they would ask that these you know, members of the executive, these bureaucrats in the, in the West Wing would say, hey, look, this is like a 70% issue in your district or your state. Why don't you write a law? You know, you have that power. And they would say, well, you know, that's the thing. 
I'll get credit with the people who want this if I convince you to do this, but I won't get blame from the people who don't want it. And I remember Cory Gardner, who I kind of like, when Jeff Sessions did something about weed, you know, the, the, they changed the rules that the Obama administration had done about pot legalization or something or prosecution. Cory Gardner set his hair on fire, screaming, this is not, the this is not what I was promised by the executive branch. This is not what the White House told me they were going to do. As if Cory Gardner has no power to write this thing called a law. And so you get this parliament to pundits effect where everyone wants to express their outrage, but no one wants to be held accountable. No one wants tough votes. The Atlantic had a great piece by uh, Representative Mike Gallagher about really nerdy institutional reform that would put power back in committees where you could actually argue about the nitty gritty of this stuff. Instead, it's all, it's not all, but it's largely performative. And the idea that a branch of government would not be the jealous guardian of its own prerogatives and powers is not something that the, that the founders foresaw. Michelle, is that a point that you uh, can agree on and the left and the right can embrace that Congress has abdicated its constitutional authority to the president, President Obama ruled by executive order and Congress did nothing, now President Trump is doing the same thing and both parties in Congress should rise up and check an imperial presidency? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that my suspicion is that where we would disagree is about why that is so, right? I mean, I think it has a lot to do with um, money in politics, right? I mean, that's, I feel like that has a lot to do with kind of why um, members of Congress have become a lot less responsive to their constituents, um, right? Because they're responsive to other people. They have to, when I've asked members of Congress, what is the, you know, especially now there's all these new people, right? All these new people have just been elected. And I've asked some of them, what surprised you most about this process? And the answer has usually been the amount of time you, you have to spend fundraising, right? The amount of time you're spending on the phone asking people for money. And so just that, because that is the thing that dominates your everyday reality as a legislature, there's just less time for legislating. And when you are legislating, you're always thinking about, you know, kind of pleasing your donors in the back of your mind. And then I think the other reason that it's so hard to actually do anything goes back to this tyranny of the minority, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, legislation that you could easily get, you know, that, that has majority support. Um, but, you know, both because of the, you know, increasing use of the filibuster and also just because of the, you know, fact that you have, you know, the kind of small state power in, in the Senate. There's just like a lot of common sense, what seems to me common sense legislation, legislation that certainly would address, you know, some of the multifarious problems that we're talking about, but just can't get done, right? I mean, it's hard, to, I mean, it, it was sort of amazing today that there was a bipartisan vote for the resolution to end US involvement in the war in Yemen. I can't think of the last time there was a bipartisan vote on a somewhat contentious issue. You know, um, just, it just, it never happens anymore. Uh, our theme tonight is Madison and time, and we're almost out of it for this magnificent panel of Goldbergs. So the last word is to you, Jeff. Why don't you leave us on a peppy note? And <laughs> I, you know, you, you've heard the arguments. If, what's the, if you had to identify a single Madisonian solution to resurrect reason rather than passion? Other than shutting down Facebook. Yeah. Um, I might fail you on, on, on that, except to say that uh, so much is contingent on the quality of leadership. Uh, you know, there's this, this idea of cacistocracy that, you know, every so often a country finds itself being ruled by the worst among 
the, the populace. Uh, I'm not, I don't want to go that far right now, but um, we, um, only because I'm trying to be re reasonable and restrained, right? Um, uh, the whole system is designed to keep people, uh, serious-minded people, uh, deliberative people, people who aren't, people who don't want to be pundits, whose, whose highest aspiration is not to be pundits. There's a whole, the whole set of reasons, and the, and the fundraising and all the rest, that keep really good people, and the, and the, and the, and the scandal-oriented culture, that, that, the, the, the destructive part of politics. Millions of reasons why bad people um, rise in politics and good people don't bother um, entering. I, I mean, I, I'm not going to be particularly peppy. I'm going to, you know, the, one of the themes here is, is and, and this is a core Madisonian observation, I think. Right now, we suffer from too much bad information being delivered too quickly and too universally by people who are just not on the level. Um, uh, I tend to think that, you know, we're in the Model T phase of social media and we're working our way through some problems. Uh, you remember for, for years, auto manufacturers, you know, 100 years ago, would not, the seatbelt technology was there fairly early, but they did not want to install seatbelts because they thought that installing seatbelts would tell the consumer that this product is dangerous. Uh, now, we, we don't understand that mentality. Of course, it's dangerous. Let's make it, let's make it less dangerous. I hope that we find our way toward um, toward figuring out how to communicate with each other um, with whatever restraints imposed internally, externally, we need to, um, to, to keep bad information out and good information uh, rise to the surface. Um, but ultimately, uh, it, it comes down to uh, a quality of leadership and a quality of civic education. And, um, and national fracturing, I think, is in, you know, I'm obviously ending on a note that I think you would endorse and the National Constitution Center would endorse. Um, national fracturing can't be healed without proper education, proper understanding of the, 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 the roots of our ideas, the, 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 the reimposition, the, the rising again of a creedal nationalism rather than pure identity politics of one kind or another. Um, the best possible note to, to, to add on, uh, to, to add to this, is, is that um, humans, and Americans in particular, have a tendency to muddle through. Um, and we find our way to reasonable solutions after expending a lot of energy on bad solutions. Um, and this has been a long and durable experiment, and it's not the worst it's ever been. Um, my magazine was founded in the 1850s, obviously at a time of acute national fracturing. Um, uh, it's most useful in a time of national fracturing, but I'm not suggesting that the next decade is going to be the, 18, the equivalent of the 1860s. Um, I think finding ways, I, I think there are a number of people in a number of grassroots ways who are people not in the cable news business, not in the social media companies, who are looking for those things that actually do unite us. And it is true, it's a cliche, but there's more that unites us than divides us. And I think we can, we can all work a little bit harder to get there. Ladies and gentlemen, for proving Madison's axiom that three generations of Goldbergs is not enough, <laughs> please join me in thanking Jeff, Michelle, and Jonah Goldberg. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by me, Tanea Tauber, and Jackie McDermott. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show, and tell your friends about it. 
and check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber. <laughs>